really glad you're all here today. Uh, my name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Peter's. And uh, we are currently in a series called Brick and Mortar. It's a series that we're going through as a church to look at the foundations of our faith, what holds us together and what keeps us going. And, and so we're doing this by examining our foundation brick by brick. And last week, uh, well, we started first week with uh, looking at our foundation, Jesus himself. And we talked about how we need to build wisely upon that foundation and how uh, God has given us the brick and the mortar to build wisely upon that foundation. And so last week, we looked at the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit, in a way, is our mortar that seals us into the foundation of Christ. The Spirit fills our heart with a love for God and the love of God and gives us the ability and the engagement and the passion uh, to live lives of uh, proclaiming life and love and grace in a world that often presses against our faith. This week, uh, we're going to be looking at a firm brick in our foundation, Scripture. And I, I know if you're a guest right now, you're thinking, oh, this is fun, a sermon from Scripture about Scripture. Uh, bear with me. You know, uh, in this series, we started with Jesus and then went to the Holy Spirit and now Scripture. And there's a, a reason to this. Um, on one level, we're following the logic found in the 39 Articles, which is a statement of the Anglican faith. Uh, but it's also because people's view of Scripture is usually formed by their view of God. And a low view of Scripture, for example, um, is usually accompanied by a low view of who Jesus is or who God is. And I wish I could say that a high view of Jesus ensured a high view of Scripture, but that's not always the case. Often, uh, people will claim all sorts of things about Jesus that aren't rooted in, in Scripture. And when asked about this, they say, well, I don't really need Scripture. I go to Jesus directly or I just pick the parts that fit well with my vision of Jesus. You know, he's nice, he's uh, pietistic, he put on really good parties. Uh, and as we'll see, all the, many of these things are true. But divorcing Jesus from uh, the whole counsel of God, the entire scripture, is deeply problematic. And so the goal of the sermon this morning is to elevate scripture to its rightful place within our community uh, and into its rightful place in light of who Jesus is. Uh, the big idea then that we're going to explore is this. Scripture is God-breathed. That's it. Scripture is God-breathed. And as such, it's an indispensable brick in our foundation in Christ. So open your Bibles up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It was our second reading. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 10. Paul writes to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors would go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We're in this series in part because the world that Jesus sends us out into, the world that we exist in as, as people of faith, isn't always an easy one. The gospel, it can be ridiculed. Our faith can teeter. Our hope can falter. Uh, we can be dealt really hard hands and, and circumstances at times. And often, it's easier to remain quiet than to witness. It's easier to blend in than stand out. It's easier to relegate faith to a corner of our lives rather than letting faith envelop all of our lives. 
Because everything in this world presses in against what we know about Jesus, and even more things press against Jesus being made known through us. And Paul, he knows this firsthand. He starts uh, by mentioning his persecutions and his sufferings, and it's a bit vague. Uh, He doesn't give us details. We get that elsewhere, but to Timothy, it wouldn't be vague. This is a letter personally addressed to Timothy, a young protege of Paul, and with Paul, Timothy has been through highs and lows. He's seen uh, Paul stoned or beaten with rods or uh, on the verge of death. And so in writing to Timothy, Paul recounts three recent events in three cities, and he also, though, and we don't want to miss this, he celebrates how the Lord rescued him. He's not focusing on the persecution so much, but the God who delivers. And then Paul, he says something that I think everyone in this room probably wishes wasn't in Scripture. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Not exactly what you see on bumper stickers. I'm yet to discover a flannel graph with it, so I made one. Uh, All who desire to live in a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But if you put a smiley face, it's kid-friendly. Paul is clear. If you want to follow Jesus, if you really want to follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. In our context, it's not going to mean death. But that's not the context of the majority of Christians throughout the world today. Often following Jesus is persecution and death. In our context, uh, it might be uh, ridicule or marginalization in the public square or a loss of credibility because of what you believe. But no matter where you live, following Jesus does not ensure safe sailing. This, This following of Christ, it means sharing in his suffering and his death. But this doesn't mean that the Christian existence is a joyless one. God actually gives us joy in the midst of this strange paradox that we die in order to live. And I want to emphasize something here just in case you're not hearing me clearly. Paul is talking about being persecuted for living a godly life. He's not talking about being persecuted because you were a jerk or because you were belligerent or because your bullhorn was too loud or because, you know, you put a bumper sticker on in your car and rear-ended someone and they told you you should have been a better Christian driver. Uh, This is not the sort of persecution Paul's talking about. He's talking about persecution that happens because you live a life of contrast against the backdrop of the world. As he says in verse 13, it's a life of contrast against evil people and imposters who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I know at this point, I'm probably losing a lot of you. You know, like, you probably don't see the world as so black and white, uh, just a matter of, of good people and evil people or godly people and evil people. It's more subtle, wouldn't you say? And there's a, I would say, a wide gray space of morality. You know, there's good people who don't believe in God, per se, uh, but they're not going from bad to worse. I mean, they seek their own well-being. They seek other people's well-being. They're truthful and caring. They're going from goodish to good or good to gooder. Uh, I think that's a word. Uh, you know, Paul, it's important to realize in this letter, Paul has a specific group of people in mind that he's uh, contrasting uh, the life Timothy's called to against. But in other letters, he shows more nuance about what it really means to exist in the world among other people. However, a godly life still contrasts even against the backdrop of good people. If you're a good person, I'm not going to contest that. I'm really not. You might be perfectly moral. There's a good chance you might even be more moral than I am. 
But when it comes to God, he's not operating in an economy of morality. This is the big misunderstanding. He's not looking at people and, and deciding upon their lives based off of how well they perform or don't perform or, or what morals they keep or don't keep. If that were the case, it doesn't matter who's in this room. If the, if the bar was God's perfection and holiness and perfect morality, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Because at, at the best, we're morally ambiguous. Uh, we have to get God's currency right. God operates in an economy of grace. He's more concerned about the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation so that people can know him and be known by him. He's more concerned about that. And so the difference then between the godly and the good but not godly isn't so much their morality, but their desire to know God, their desire to receive this grace and forgiveness and reconciliation, or the desire to just live how they want to live. And although people... uh, who don't believe in God or don't want to know God might be as moral or even more moral than some Christians. Paul doesn't mean that we should just blend in and have undistinguishable lives. He doesn't let us off the hook of having transformed lives. Look at verse uh, 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul starts out with, but as for you, his expectation is that Timothy's life and all of our lives would be different. We won't easily fit into a mold. We'll be a peculiar people and we'll live differently because of the way we anchor our lives. He calls Timothy to continue in his learning and what he's firmly believed. But he does this by pointing Timothy back to where he learned all of that. Look at verse 14, 15 again. Paul says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, Timothy, he grew up in a household of faith. His grandmother came to faith and then his mother and then him. And he can be traced back to the first Christians. And he grew up in a family that anchored him in these sacred writings in the scriptures. And Paul, he's essentially saying, stay in the word, Timothy. Stay in the word. And there's two ways of doing this. First, we see that you do this by being in the context of a community. Timothy had a family in the early church. But also by developing a personal practice. Because we know that Timothy had some of the scriptures available to him. Whether it was through local synagogues or parchments that Paul gave to him. And both of these practices, though are still a struggle for us today. Whether it's developing a personal practice of reading the scriptures or participating in a corporate practice of understanding the scriptures. Often when I meet with people pastorally, uh, I try not to just like go for the jugular, right? So I try to blend in. I sit in the hipster coffee shop and and look cool. And then at some point, I just kind of ease the conversation, as you all know, and just say, so how's the Jesus thing working out for you? And uh, often, nine times out of ten, people say, you know, I really don't feel as close to God as I'd like. That's just the, 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 the response I hear the most. And so I'll dig a little. I'll just say, okay, well, what, what do you think would help make you feel closer to God? And they say, well, I'm not really reading Scripture. I don't really pray consistently. I'd like to, but I just don't have time. And, and so I just ask, you know, do you think that might be correlated somehow? And I don't ask to heap guilt or shame. I already see people feel, feel guilty and shame about not having these practices in a way they would like. But I do it to remind us that these practices, a personal engagement of the scriptures in prayer, are correlated to how close we will often feel to God. 
A national study, uh, they interviewed 6,500 people in each province, uh, discovered that only 14%, 14% of Canadians read the Bible once a month. 14%. But the personal practice is hard, but so is the corporate practice, if we're honest. I mean, how easily do we justify missing a service for a better opportunity? You know, you're all here right now, so you're like, I don't. You feel good about it. But <laughs> honestly, like, we look at a service like it's optional. I mean, I don't get to because I have to be here. But if I didn't work here, man, the mountains, like, they call us no matter what season. I'd miss the occasional Sunday for the mountains, of course. Or uh, the warmth of our beds. I mean, the warmth of bed compels you. Like, sometimes you just want to sleep in. I get it. How often, though, do you neglect meeting with your community group because something else pops up, something more urgent, something that you actually prioritize higher than engaging in the word with your fellow um, believers in Christ. Now, developing these corporate practices where scriptures read and studied and proclaimed is just as important as our personal uh, devotional practices. I occasionally uh, run uh, an event called Beer and Theology, and seekers, skeptics, saints, sinners, agnostics, atheists, and alien believers uh, gather in this bar called the Sin Bin, which just closed, unfortunately. But uh, it was good fun. And uh, we would talk about different topics. How does faith relate to science? How does faith relate to other religions and all these sort of things? And I'll never forget that one of, one of the comments a friend of mine made, I had become friends with him through this event. His name's Armin. He runs an organization called the Atheist Republic uh, and, and he asked, <laughs> yeah, that's a real thing. And uh, he asked me, you Christians think the Bible is God-breathed? And I said, yeah. And he said, here's what I don't understand. I ask Christians all the time if they read their Bible, and often they say, Serious? no, they say no. And I say, seriously? If I had a book that I believe was written by God, I would read the out of that book. Like, I would read that book. And uh, he said it in a crass way, which was enjoyable, but... Uh, <laughs> He's right. He's right. And he understands that Scripture is supposed to be a key distinctive of the Christian life. He understands that if, if we knew what we held in our hands, we would rarely put it down. And this is backed up by research. That same survey discovered that Canadians who strongly agree that the Bible is the Word of God are ten times as likely to read the Bible frequently, at least a few times a week, and six times as likely to attend religious services weekly as those who just moderately agree. There's a huge difference. And so while a lack of discipline or self-control can be attributed to a lack of Scripture reading, I also think it's due to a low view of Scripture. We don't really understand what it is. It's this mysterious book, or we, we don't think that we can understand it on our own. We don't think it's sufficiently clear, and so we leave it alone altogether. But I want to put forward, maybe it's because we haven't adequately considered what we hold in our hands. After all, the same study says that 23% of Christians believe that the Bible is relevant to modern day life. Let me put it differently. 77% of people who identify as Christian said that they do not think the Bible is relevant to life. 77% of Christians in Canada. Think about it. It's heartbreaking. We're missing it. It hurts. Now, Paul doesn't just lay down this challenge of read your Bible by heaping on a bunch of guilt. I mean, that 
doesn't work. I, I'm not trying to do that either. If we feel guilty, all of us, like if guilt could guarantee transformation, like I would be like 20 pounds lighter and all of us would be skinny. Like if guilt was that powerful, but it's not. So let's not go that way. Let's try something else. Because Paul, he says, continue in the word. And then he immediately starts talking about what scripture is. Look again at verses 16 and 17. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture, he says, is uh, able to make you wise in salvation in Christ Jesus. And the 39 articles um, pick up on Paul's language. Article 6 says, Uh, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation. This is from our Anglican heritage, but it's just good biblical theology. So it seems like we should ask, what is being wise in salvation? What does that mean? Paul uh, says it takes digging into Scripture, discovering faith in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the Ephesians, for example, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So what's being wise in salvation? It's knowing the gospel. Is discovering this economy of grace that we could never set ourselves right for God, with God. If there's a God, he's not looking at our morality because if he was, we'd all be in trouble. We can't earn our salvation. We can't perform enough. We can't be good enough. Uh, we can't be moral enough or try hard enough because grace is a gift. It's given to you. It's free. Paul says, God loved you even while you were dead in your sins. God, he writes elsewhere, he loved you even when you were weak, even when you were an enemy of his. He loved you and he gives you this. But then we have to ask the question, what's necessary then for salvation? If this is the economy of grace, what's necessary to start operating within this economy? Faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith that God really does set us right with himself through a gift of grace. Not about what we can do, but about what's been done for us by Christ dying on the cross to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God so that we can experience this great mercy and love that God has for us. You see, passages like this, they make us wise in salvation, but they're both comforting and challenging. It's comforting to hear God loves you, like God is crazy about you. But it's challenging to hear, like, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your, uh, I left that part out, but the, yeah, you're children of wickedness. You know, like it's, it's harsh. These are challenging things to accept about ourselves. Why should we trust uh, a message like this that causes such offense that pushes against our sensibilities? If scripture is just another book, we can write it off. But if it's more than that, then we have to listen to what it has to say. And Paul, he says in verse 16, it's not just another book. It's scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is breathed out by God throughout the ages. Faithful Christians have always claimed that the Bible is no ordinary book. But again, I feel like I might be losing some of you at this point because 68% of Canadians say 
that the Bible has irreconcilable, irreconcilable uh, contradictions. 68% of our country thinks the Bible, you just you shouldn't waste your time with it. And, I mean, can you blame them? I mean, it's, it's really sort of an odd belief that we have about the Bible. A God-breathed book. It's odd that we adhere to this archaic, regressive at times, book that should just be rele- like relegated to a, you know, a relic of history. But it's a book above all books. It's not just because it's the best-selling book of all time. Um, sorry, Donald Trump. Uh, it's, it's the most reliable book that we have ever seen come out of history. Let's take the Gospels as an example. Here's a, a little uh, slide I want to show you. Uh, it, it might be a little hard to see, so we'll post it online. Uh, when it comes to the New Testament, it was, it was mostly written between 40 AD and 90 to 100 AD. That's when all the writers of the New Testament uh, wrote their parts. And we have 24,000 copies of various manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. Now, the, some of those are even within 30 years of the original writings. This is Amazing, and within all of that, the Bible actually is consistent across all of these manuscripts. You can see consistency in the scripture. Now, the next closest thing that we have is the Iliad by Homer, with only 643 copies, like fragments, you know, full copies and all that. But the closest we have to the original date that Homer was written, 500 years. The Bible is unparalleled in ancient history. There is more... Um, historical evidence just in what we have for at least, at the very least, that Jesus was a historical person than we can say for Plato or Aristotle or Caesar. It's amazing. And it's amazing that this book survived. It's an unusual amount of historical data. So at the very least, we can trust that what we have in our hands is very, 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 very close to the original writings. So close, in fact... Uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, he's uh, the leading critic, uh, textual critic of the Bible. He's not a Christian. He publishes books and makes tons of money on saying why you shouldn't trust the Bible. But then if you read his appendix, he actually says, nowhere in any of the textual discrepancies is there a contradiction that undermines key historic Christian doctrine. Even Bart Ehrman says the Bible is consistent in its message across all of the manuscripts, even when there's textual uncertainties. That's a powerful testimony from someone who doesn't even believe in the scriptures. Now, what does it mean then that the scriptures are God-breathed? This is, I think, the meat that we have to get to this morning. Some translations say inspired, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's, it's, it's accurate. The Bible's often been described as inspired. But don't you kind of start thinking of like, the artist who's like inspired in a moment and uh, you know, cleaned their room for the first time in their life or they're like inspired for a moment and they wrote a song. Like we see it as this whimsical creativity uh, and that's not what was going on with the writers of scripture. Scripture is God breathed. I want to dwell in the intimacy of this metaphor. Uh, scripture then it flows out of God's being. He breathed it out, and the Holy Spirit is often associated with breath throughout the scriptures. Even Yahweh in, in in the Hebrew, if you look at it, it's more like a sound. It's more like, Yahweh. Like, it sounds like breathing if you say God's name the way it's supposed to be said. And so as God breathes, the Holy Spirit 
filled and guided the authors of, of Scripture. And the Spirit was at work in the entire process, raising the various authors up, forming their lives, uh, inspiring them and, and showing them what to write, and uh, having the, the Scriptures collected and redacted and edited and even canonized. You have to see that God was breathing throughout this entire process and not just in one part of it. And since the source of Scripture is ultimately God, therefore, and this is a, a perfectly logical conclusion, it is without error and does not misrepresent the facts. Scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's like CPR. Remember, Paul writes, we were dead. We were dead. We could not by our own will come to God. But God presses his lips against ours, so to speak, and breathes life into us. He breathes truth into our darkened minds. He breathes out directions to the source of life. And although the Bible contains 66 books spanning across hundreds of centuries, it has one focus and one story. It, it's about God's redemption of the world, God's salvation of the world, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's fundamentally a book about salvation and making us wise in salvation. And since Scripture comes from God, it has ultimate authority because God has all authority over heaven and earth. This is why Paul says in verse 16 and 17, Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We can trust it. It guides us, corrects us, it trains us that we might grow and grow in our faith and in our faithfulness. And I know the question we have to ask, though, is how do we know this about Scripture? In a way, the Bible is self-authenticating. When we come to faith in Christ, when the Spirit of God fills our hearts and our minds, the same Spirit who authored the Scriptures, we come to see the utter trustworthiness and reliability of the Scriptures because its message hasn't just informed us but completely transformed our lives. But I realize there's something deeply dissatisfying about the answer I just gave you. But the, the thing is, I'm not calling us to repent and believe in the Bible. It would be really boring. Uh, I'm, I'm calling us to repent and believe in Jesus. Because the Bible is the Word of God is ultimately about the Word of God, Christ himself. And the Bible brings us into his presence. Uh, but you can repent and believe in Jesus before you ever experience the truths about what the Scriptures are. So go to Christ first, and as a consequence, you'll come to see what the scriptures truly are. It's no wonder if this is what the Bible is, if you grant that presupposition, that Paul gives Timothy this wonderful charge for, for pastors of churches. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. You know, Paul, he anchors first Timothy in the story of God, in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus who will come to judge the living and the dead. And by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. If you're going to do one thing, Timothy, preach the word. If you're going to pick a church in the city, the baseline should be do they preach the word? Because honestly, if you're going and the church does not preach the word, just stay at home and watch some TED Talks. I mean, people, there's way more interesting people to go listen to on a Sunday morning than me. I promise you that. Preach the word is the message for the church. Preach the word. Not what we think. 
what the word says. Always, he says, in and out of season, always being ready to let it instruct us and rebuke us, inform us, preach the word. Why? Why is this so important? Look at verses three and five. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The heart of the issue is we don't want sound teaching. We want teaching that works with what we already believe or supports what we want to do with our lives. Uh, We aren't really disposed to want to hear the raw, honest truth. We'd prefer to settle for like illusions of truth or glimmers of truth, but not the entire truth itself. Because the scriptures, they just say things we don't want to hear. They espouse opinions we just don't agree with. And so what do we do? There's three things we do. We either uh, avoid the word altogether, we sit in front of the word, or we stand above the word. I'll go through these really quick. Uh, and if we, if we do any of these things, our Bibles start looking like Thomas Jefferson's, where he just started cutting out parts he didn't like. Uh, When we avoid the word, when we avoid the word, we come up with some rationalization to not have to engage it. Oh, it's just an archaic book. Uh, It's just a book among other books. It's irrelevant to modern day life. It's contradicting. Whatever it is that you say, you've come up with the justification not to read it or submit your life to it. When we sit before the word, we take it, but we hold it at arm's length. And often you're more concerned about whether the sermon is interesting or funny or applicable or short enough, sorry, and you find ways to not have to engage it fully and and you hold it at arm's length. You're more interested in a good lesson but not applying it to your life because you don't want the word of God necessarily to become the living word within you. But when I think the most common thing we do is we actually stand above the word. We take the Bible, we throw it on the ground, we stand on it. If you're super conservative, I'm sorry, but We stand on the scriptures in the 21st century and we say, this is an archaic book. We know better than it. So we'll cut out the parts we don't like. We'll rewrite other parts. We'll just focus on what we like and what's pleasing to us. But when we do this, we actually form Jesus in our own image and don't let him be the living Lord. These are three very common responses to the scriptures. I see it all the time. I see it in my own heart. The correct posture before the word of God is to sit under the word. It's to come to the word with humility, realizing that we are disposed to want to rewrite it, to select parts, or to avoid it altogether. And we have to come willing to let it form our values and change what we believe and let it be the director of our lives, knowing that it's ultimately making us wise in salvation. It is ultimately directing us to an encounter with the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself. And that is what Paul is advocating for Timothy, stay in the word because through the spirit, you'll be sealed into your true foundation, Jesus Christ himself, who loves you and has had mercy on you and wants to know you and be in relationship with you and give you joy. Sit under the word. So he closes, as you all... As for you, always be sober-minded. Don't give in to myths and false teaching. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry because... Scripture is your lifeline, and in the same way, Scripture is our lifeline. It's only through Scripture, by sitting under the Word, that we can become a people of a Word, that we can become people of contrast. And of course, our lives appear unusual and peculiar because we're saying this book is God-breathed. It's a weird doctrine. We're 
We're saying, I'm going to follow this book. We're saying that it's not really about this book. It's about the person in this book. And we're going to follow him because he loves us and he redeems us. This makes us peculiar against the backdrop of the world, whether someone's good or going from bad to worse. (coughs) So I want to close by asking you, what do you think about Scripture? And does your engagement with Scripture reflect that belief? If you don't read Scripture, maybe you need to change your belief about what Scripture is. Or if you don't read Scripture, maybe you need to change your belief about who Jesus really is. And if you want to know him more and more, you should start in the Gospels. Start with the Gospel of John. I want to say, if you need help with this, if you're struggling and you're embarrassed and you don't want to talk about it, we get that. We're not not trying to make you feel bad about the challenge of cultivating discipline. We've created the daily offices. You can grab one at the connection table. It'll have a small amount of scripture reading every day and also teach you how to pray. And if you need help learning how to use that or adapting it for a way that's suitable to your schedule or temperament, come talk to me or Roger, the pastors, or your community group leader or Stephen's minister. We'd love to help you learn how to get these practices in your life. But I want to close and end this with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. 